Welcome to the Rapid Response RN Podcast, helping you keep your finger on the pulse of your patient's condition with real-life stories from the front lines of nursing. This podcast can help you sharpen your assessment skills, improve your ability to recognize the signs and symptoms of your patient's decline, be inspired to speak up and advocate, and know how to jump into action to promote the best outcome for your patients. Hey, everybody. I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. On today's episode, we're going to be doing part two of a two-part series, and I'll be discussing the pathophysiology of COPD, the different levels of oxygen delivery, and the nurse's role in caring for patients with COPD exacerbations. If you haven't already listened to part one of this COPD and barbecue story, go ahead and pause this one and go back to hear part one. But if you have, and you're interested in learning more about caring for respiratory patients, then stay tuned because there is so much to talk about. Let's start with the basic pathophysiology of COPD. COPD, or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, is characterized by either weak damaged alveoli, also known as emphysema, or inflammation, an increased mucus production of the bronchial tubes, also known as bronchitis, or sometimes they have both. It's called chronic obstructive pulmonary disease for a reason, because the air is obstructed from getting out of the lungs. With emphysema, air gets trapped in the weak, stretched out, stiff alveoli, and with chronic bronchitis, the inflamed and mucousy airways are narrowed and obstruct the air from making out of the only exit, the bronchi. Most people with COPD have a combination of both sets of challenges, damaged air sacs and narrowed airways full of mucus. And most people with COPD developed it from years and years of cigarette smoking. Though other irritants like chemical fumes or air pollution can damage the lungs, also resulting in COPD. The other key word here besides obstructive is chronic, meaning the disease is not curable. People with COPD can make lifestyle modifications and take all their medications to help them breathe a little easier, but they can expect to still have exacerbations, which means you as a nurse can expect to care for lots of patients with COPD exacerbations. When COPD is paired with heart failure or pneumonia or other diseases that affect the lungs, it makes for the perfect storm for impaired gas exchange. For a COPD patient who comes to the hospital with shortness of breath and or cough, but they're maintaining their oxygen level, their baseline mental status, and they're not in respiratory distress, those patients will still likely be admitted for a little COPD tune-up, so to speak. Albuterol and atrovent, often called duoneb, to dilate the tight inflamed bronchi and decrease the massive amount of mucus production. Intravenous steroids, usually methylprednisone, to decrease inflammation in the lungs. And if a secondary infection is exacerbating the COPD, then the appropriate antibiotic or antiviral therapy would also be a part of the tune-up. But while the COPD patient is experiencing the exacerbation of symptoms, we have to closely monitor their oxygenation and choose the appropriate level of oxygen therapy so as not to overdo it, but not allowing for hypoxia either. And that is the hardest part because so many factors play into this decision not just the oxygen saturation. I'd like to start by dispelling the whole, quote-unquote, giving COPDers oxygen can be dangerous because of their hypoxic drive 
quote, myth. Well, maybe myth isn't the best word. How about misconception or misapplication of knowledge? I was taught in nursing school many years ago that I should give COPD patients as little oxygen as possible because if I gave too much, I could shut down their hypoxic drive and they would just stop breathing right there in front of me. Scared me to death. I actually argued with a doc one time when I was a baby nurse because he wanted me to put the patient on a non-rebreather. And I said, what about the hypoxic drive? He could stop breathing. He responded, if he stops breathing, we can just bag him. Right now, he needs 100% oxygen. The, bi- the hypoxic drive thing, it's real. But how that knowledge is applied has evolved and improved since the start of my career. So let's break that down. Most people without chronically high CO2 levels are triggered to take a breath when their CO2 level is elevated. So as CO2 rises, the body senses that and speeds up respirations to take more breaths and blow off the CO2. But COPD patients have chronically high CO2 levels. So that trigger is not as sensitive. Instead, they develop a hypoxic drive that triggers their breath when the partial pressure of oxygen begins to drop. The theory goes that if you give a COPD or oxygen, then they, quote, lose their hypoxic drive to take breaths and then develop hypoventilation and even apnea. So here's what we know now. COPD patients do have chronically elevated CO2 levels. But the presence of the hypoxic drive has been shown to be a minor contributor to oxygen-induced hypercapnia. There are two other factors at play on the cellular level that could lead to worsened hypercapnia. Increased VQ mismatch and the Haldane effect. And both of which are much easier to explain with photos and graphs, and I'll link a few resources in the show notes so you can learn more about them. The takeaway is... Oxygen therapy should not be avoided in the hypoxic COPD patient. Withholding oxygen from someone who's struggling to exchange the gases will cause more harm than trying to prevent oxygen-induced hypercapnia. A wiser solution is to titrate oxygen delivery to shoot for an SpO2 between 88 and 92%. We are never really shooting for 100% with these patients. But here lies the challenge. What is the best oxygen delivery modality to achieve this goal? Let's go through each option, starting with the simplest and least invasive simple nasal cannula, and work our way up to intubation with mechanical ventilation. So nasal cannulas are great. At 2 liters per minute, your patient's getting about 28% FiO2, or fraction of inspired oxygen. Room air is approximately 21%. You can titrate up to give more liters per minute, and each liter per minute increases the FiO2 a little bit. But it is impossible to say with accuracy how much FiO2 the patient is actually inhaling into their lungs. How much of a mouth breather is the patient? Every patient's a little different. You can turn up the liters per minute to about six liters per minute, and then it starts to get uncomfortable for the patient. Oxygen is very drying, so if you're going to give more than 4 liters per minute, try to get some humidification added to the line. If the nasal cannula just isn't cutting it, and the patient is still really working to breathe, or you aren't achieving the target SpO2, you can use a venti mask or venturi mask. 
These are great because whether you have a nose breather or a mouth breather, your patient can get the oxygen they need and you can determine the amount of oxygen by the little dial at the end of the mask. Every manufacturer is different, but for the most part, you can choose the FiO2 that you want, like 40 or 50%, and then the device tells you how high to set the flow on the wall in liters per minute to achieve that FiO2. But your max FiO2 on a Venti is only 50%. Venti masks are a great modality for COPD patients, as you can easily adjust the FiO2 based on how your patient's doing at the time and you can give them consistent and predictable FiO2 in response to their needs. The downside, like all masks, is that it's difficult for the patient to get oral intake of food and water with the mask on. The final upgrade on the low-flow list of oxygen delivery methods is a non-rebreather mask. That's the one that has a little bag hanging from the mask. That reservoir fills with 100% oxygen from the wall and there are valves built into the mask, so the idea is that the patient will get 100% oxygen from their bag and not rebreathe their own exhaled CO2. But in practice, the patient gets more like 60 to 90% FiO2 from the quote unquote 100% non rebreather mask. When using the non rebreather, there are a few common errors that I encounter. First, you have to have it plugged into oxygen with a flow of 15 liters per minute or higher. If you switch to the non-rebreather mask but keep the same flow on the wall flow meter, you will definitely not help improve your patient's oxygenation. Second, the reservoir bag needs to be puffy and full of oxygen to do its thing. If it's flat, it's not a non-rebreather mask. So make sure that you check that before applying a suffocating mask onto your patient's face. And finally, you should not humidify oxygen delivery through a non-rebreather. Adding humidification with a flow of greater than 10 liters per minute will cause condensate to build up in the small bore tubing of your non-rebreather mask or venti mask with a high flow setting. So tubing full of fluid cannot function the way it was meant to. Make sure to switch it over to the port without the humidification before attaching it to the non-rebreather mask. But after you ensure that the bag is inflated and the flow is high enough, your next question should be, why does my patient need a non-rebreather mask? This should always be a temporary intervention, a bridge to the next step. Patients should never be left on a non-rebreather for hours and hours. You should either be considering what else you can do to optimize their oxygenation, i.e. give Lasix or a breathing treatment or a chest tube or whatever will fix the issue that got them to this point of needing a non-rebreather. Or if you've exhausted all of your options to help downgrade the patient off the non-rebreather, then you should start planning for the next step up. But the non-rebreather mask is not the solution. Do not put your patient on the non-rebreather and go on your lunch break. This is a temporary solution. It is not the final destination, just a bridge. Next is the high-flow nasal cannula. I really like the high-flow nasal cannula, but it's kind of cumbersome to set up, so it's not my go-to for a crashing patient. With the high-flow nasal cannula, you set both the flow rate in 20 to 70 liters per minute and the FiO2 at 21 to 100%. And it is usually humidified and heated for comfort of the patient. There are several benefits to the high-flow nasal cannula. The first being, 
it is generally well tolerated and has very few risk or contraindications. Obviously, patients with nasal injuries or nasal packing could have some issues with high flow going through their nares, but most patients do well with it and for a prolonged period of time. Additionally, patients can eat and talk easily with the high flow nasal cannula. But the biggest benefit of the high flow compared to the regular low flow nasal cannula is that it helps improve both oxygenation and gently supports ventilation. The support of ventilation is achieved through something called dead space washout. We all have anatomic dead space, meaning the gas that occupies the space in the airway that does not do any gas exchange. So from your mouth and nose down to your bronchioles, no effective gas exchange occurs, but the body still has to work to move that gas in and out. Well, the high flow nasal cannula air is pouring into the naso and oropharynx. So now what was once dead space occupied by the previously exhaled CO2 is now acting like a reservoir for oxygen, similar to our non-rebreather mask, but better. So when they breathe in, there is less dead space to have to deal with or overcome, and all that fresh oxygen in the nasopharynx can make its way down to the alveoli with less effort on the part of the patient. In summary, it replaces a portion of your dead space with oxygen-rich air, hence improving breathing efficiency. And in addition to all that, the high flow provides some PEEP, PEEP is an acronym for positive end expiratory pressure, or the amount of pressure the alveoli have after you exhale. There are several factors that help, <clears throat> that affect how much PEEP, and it's not as effective or consistent as a more closed system like BiPAP or an endotracheal tube, but it does provide a little bit, and a little bit is sometimes all the patient needs. Okay, we're almost done here. Two more oxygen delivery modalities to cover. Next is BiPAP. I love BiPAP, especially for your COPD patients. BiPAP is the big Darth Vader mask that attaches to a ventilator-looking machine and basically forces air into the patient's lungs without having to intubate them. BiPAP is better than CPAP because you can set two pressures, hence the bi part of the title. The RT will set an inspiratory pressure, so how much pressure the machine will provide when the patient's taking a breath in, and an expiratory pressure, or how much pressure it maintains in the alveoli when the patient's breathing out. BiPAP is able to provide not only oxygen, but pressure to take some of the work of breathing off your tired patient. The patient determines the respiratory rate and length of each breath, but the BiPAP helps get the air into the lungs with less effort on the patient's part. But this pressure comes at a cost. There are risks to forcing air into someone's lungs through a closed mask. So lots of patients aren't the best candidates for BiPAP. It works best with patients who can participate, are awake enough to be able to pull the mask off their face if they had to vomit, and patients at risk for aspiration or who have already aspirated should probably not be put on BiPAP. There are nasal BiPAP masks, but I honestly have not used them much. And the couple times that I tried it because the patient had a big old beard, we couldn't get a good seal with the full face mask, but the nasal mask didn't really work that much better, honestly. So that's just my experience. I'm sure some folks have had great success with it. 
Let's dive a little more into the contraindications because I really want you to think through these before considering BiPAP for your patient. Patients who are somnolent or difficult to arouse carry a high risk of aspiration. Think like your septic shock or stroke patient. If you don't think they could protect their airway, maybe they need an advanced airway and not BiPAP. But I've used BiPAP on patients who are drowsy purely from hypercapnia, and we know that because of their history and their current ABG. And those patients I've put on BiPAP and watched them perk up in 10 minutes. But that's the key. I watched them. I stay with my patients, so if they were to start vomiting, I was there to get that mask off. So use your assessment skills and your intuition. If your patient can barely hold their head up, maybe they need more than BiPAP. If you're about to take your patient to CT scan where they have to lay flat, maybe BiPAP isn't the safest. If your patient says they're nauseous or they've been vomiting, don't strap a mask to their face and force air in it because if they vomit, the BiPAP machine will help them aspirate that vomitus deep into their lungs. I hear lungs don't like that. As effective as the BiPAP can be, it's only effective if the patient can tolerate it. And not everyone can. When I was the ER educator, we got a new transport vent that had a CPAP setting, and when I was teaching the staff how to use it, I decided to try it on myself for demonstration purposes, and I could not tolerate it. Forcing air into your lungs does not feel natural. Honestly, I felt more like I was being suffocated than supported, but I thought, people somehow sleep with this thing on. I can tolerate it for a few minutes. So I toughed it out and kind of learned to work with how how it breathes for you rather than against it. <clears throat> but it definitely gave me more empathy for those patients who are gasping for air, but then won't keep the BiPAP on. If you are in the headspace for it, it's not comfortable. And I totally understand why some patients need some gentle sedation to comply with the BiPAP. But like I said earlier, don't zonk these people. They have to protect their airway. But a little whiff of fentanyl or even better, a low dose of dexamethamine can take the edge off and help the patient settle into the support of the BiPAP. So how do you know when it's time to escalate to intubation? I would say it depends on the patient. My first trigger is if the patient just can't tolerate the BiPAP. If they're ripping it off their face, even with our sedation of choice, and there's no talking the patient into working with the BiPAP, and they're in severe respiratory distress, they will eventually experience diaphragmatic fatigue and respiratory arrest. Ever lifted weights in like the first 20 reps or so were no big deal, but by the time you got to 30 or 40 reps, your muscles literally failed and you couldn't lift the weight anymore. The same thing happens with the diaphragm. It can work for a while, but it can reach a point where the muscle itself cannot keep going. We don't want the patient to cross that threshold. I'd rather intubate before they get to that point. But let's say they are tolerating it, but their SpO2 just isn't getting any better with BiPAP. For COPD patients, remember, we're okay with lower SpO2, so like 88 to 92%, that's fine. We expect a little high CO2, maybe in the 50s, but if the SpO2 continues to drop and the CO2 continues to rise, maybe it's time for intubation. And my final trigger is work of breathing. Now, the BiPAP is not an instant fix, but you should see your patient's work of breathing improve within 20 minutes or so. 
maybe not down to the rate of 16 breaths a minute, but if you see improvement and they look a little more comfortable, then let the BiPAP keep working its magic. Sometimes it takes a few hours to fully correct the hypercapnia and for the body to catch up enough to slow down the respiratory rate. And those triggers are why I push for intubation for this patient from the story. He was working hard to breathe and he was not improving. Even though I didn't have an ABG yet, I knew he was hypercapnic from his mental status. His SpO2 was not getting better either. It was getting worse. And the big one for me, my intuition. My intuition said he wasn't going to last much longer before he gave out. So I advocated for him to get the support he needed before he got to that point. The final oxygen delivery modality is the endotracheal tube attached to the ventilator. This podcast is already way longer than most of my podcasts, so I won't go into depth on this one. But in summary, the ventilator is the mac daddy of oxygen delivery options. There are so many settings that allow you to tailor each breath to exactly what your patient needs to optimize oxygenation and ventilation. And you can learn a lot about how sick your patient's lungs actually are by looking at the ventilator and seeing how the pressure and volume changes inside the lungs with the types of breath that are being delivered. In fact, there is so much to learn about ventilators that there is an entire profession dedicated just to that. As nurses, we rely heavily on our respiratory therapy colleagues to help us promote effective gas exchange in our patients. But the more we know, the better we can collaborate to make the best decisions for the patients in our care. We covered a lot, so let's review the main takeaways. First, COPDers have both sick, stiff alveoli and narrowed airways full of mucus. For that reason, they are chronically hypercapnic and live at a lower SpO2 level. It's okay to let their SpO2 be a little lower than your other patients. Their body's used to that. But if the SpO2 is dipping into the low 80s, it's recommended to give your COPD patient some oxygen but titrate it to a goal of 88 to 92%. Don't give them more than what they need. You can choose from several different oxygen delivery methods based on how they're presenting and how much support they need. Know that BiPAP is a great emergent intervention for COPD, but it carries risk of aspiration, so choose wisely and be prepared for puke. And finally, you are the voice for your patient when they cannot speak up for themselves. Know that your advocacy could literally save your patient's life. So don't worry about looking stupid. I was somehow able to advocate for this patient with barbecue sauce smeared on my face. I know it can be a little intimidating to have to call a doctor. I mean, they could find you annoying or think that you're wasting their time. But remember, it's not 1950 anymore, and you don't work for the doctor. You and the doctor work together for the patient. You owe it to them to escalate your concerns until you get your patient what they need. I promise it's worth the risk. Well, that's it for today's episode. If you like this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email with questions or comments, and it would mean so much if you could take a moment to write a review on iTunes, as this helps more listeners find this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, Nursing is a team sport, 
So trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. You've been listening to the Rapid Response RN podcast. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing, and your patient's care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponsernpodcast at gmail.com or on the Rapid Response RM Podcast Facebook page, as well as the podcast website, rapidresponsern.com.